So yeah, let's get started. Yep, I'm gonna go ahead and record it. Um, and I wanted to give everyone a big thank you for showing up tonight and hearing all about uh, risk assessment, what it is, how to avoid it, what are mitigating factors, so on and so forth. So uh, I'm here to introduce Danny and he's gonna be talking to us tonight about all the things we need to know about risk. So take it away. Excellent, thank you, Jessica. Good evening, everyone, and happy holidays. Always a pleasure uh, to have this format to get an opportunity to talk, to teach, to educate you guys. Um, we typically get good uh, feedback on our webinars because we tend to put uh, content, real content from the trenches and share with you guys. And uh, we welcome your questions. Uh, tonight's topic is probably something that uh, I plan that will take a bit less than what we no normally go through an hour plus. So I think we're gonna be less than an hour today, depending on questions, of course. Um, so you are most welcome to post your questions. Can they post the questions? Yeah, they can post a question in the chat and it'll come to me and then I can moderate it over to you and we can go from there whenever the Excellent. Excellent. time is appropriate. Excellent, so let's get started. I'll share the screen and we'll dive right into it and I'll introduce myself and uh, we'll try to uh, really provide you some value for tonight. It's always our goal. Okay, so we're going to talk about risk tonight. And before we dive into talking about risk, let me introduce myself. I know we have people that have already attended our previous webinars. And we are now on a pace of kind of doing a webinar on average every about three weeks or so. We're probably going to take a little break for the holidays and see, we'll, we'll put some, start putting something together uh, mid-January or late January. That's probably the plan. Uh, my name is Danny Bedor. Uh, I am an investor, real estate investor. I've been, I've been a real estate investor for the past uh, 20 years, actually exactly 20 years. I started investing in U.S. real estate back in 2002 while being a young engineer working for an Israeli high-tech company in Tel Aviv starting my, my life as an adult, started saving a little bit of money, not a lot, and kind of started looking for my path, uh, financial path, let's just say it, not a financial, I wasn't looking for a financial path, I was looking for how can I elevate myself? At the, at the time, my girlfriend, now my wife, and we have a 10-year-old you know, boy, uh, but I was on a path, I was on a personal mission, um, to find a way or to teach myself a way to get myself to a prosperity in knowingly or kind of realizing that just hard work, we're probably not going to be enough. And it's not there's anything wrong with hard work. I've always been a hard worker, but I could tell looking around uh, parents, my parents, you know, older cousins, uncles, parents, friends, all hardworking people and 15, 20 years into their adult working family, etc. What do they normally, what most of them have? The condo, maybe a house with, with a mortgage. And they're already 15, 20 years in, and it's not like the mortgage, um, you know, it may be halfway through the mortgage, uh, you know, if they're lucky. And I just told myself, this is not a path I want to be on working hard, working hard, you know, giving up on family time and sometimes weekends and working late. 
I wanted to find a way that will be able to, in a way, leverage my work, leverage, you know, my time and the, the work that I already have from the employer at the time and see how I can leverage it towards building something, some more long-term wealth. Uh, and that's kind of what brought me to real estate at the time from Tel Aviv, U.S. real estate. And in 2002, I bought my first single family home outside Phoenix, Arizona, in a nice little town called Litchfield Park, really a nice area, nothing too fancy, nothing too crazy, just a middle-class house in a new community, brand new home from the builder. Uh, and the plan was to hold it and rent it for many years, and we'll see how it goes. That was kind of, th that's pretty much the business plan I had in mind, which is completely different than what we do today. Um, in 2004, we moved to the States, and by that time, I've done two more kind of group, small group investments, not, nothing too exciting. And since 2004, you know, I moved to the States with a clear intention to pursue real estate full time. I was passionate about it by that time. I wanted to really immerse myself in real estate, not just be like a passive investor. I really want to be in the, in the gist of things. Um, and I started... Uh, I continued investing little by little, you know, as, as much as I was able to save up, but at the same time, working with investors and actually people, not, I wouldn't say investors, people, ordinary, everyday people, uh, helping them also execute the same idea, the same concept of buying real estate, where the whole notion of it was, we live in a, I personally at the time and a lot of my clients live in expensive real estate markets, mainly California, but not just California. What I mean, real estate is the piece of property costs a lot of money uh, and the rent is relatively low, right? The rent is low, meaning a high, you know, uh, uh, the rent is not low by any means, but relatively to the purchase price, relative to the value of the property, the rent is low, where other parts of the country can give you a much higher rent ratio compared to the price of the property. And that was the, 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 the gist of it. That was the basic assumption here. And how to execute it, where to go, what to buy, who to trust. That's everything that uh, I was, you know, started doing back then and working until now, still today, uh, with clients um, helping them execute that. Funnily enough, this morning, I have an investor client who bought with me, I think their first property in 10, 2010. So that's probably 11 or 12 years from now. They bought few properties with me. Um, and kind of over the years, we kind of stayed remotely in touch here and there. And this morning, the guy called me and said, Danny, you know, we moved back to Israel. He used to live in the Bay Area back then. We actually want to see how we can leverage some of the properties we bought way back to diverse, to sell some, to buy more. We need some guidance. We need how to avoid taxes. So it's kind of interesting or funny or nice to see someone that... Uh, started working with me buying real estate more than 10 years ago. And we have not necessarily kept uh, close in touch. Coming back 10 years later, more than 10 years later, hey, I'm ready to do more. Let's do it. They did a bunch of properties back then. Um, I'm ready to do to actually use those properties and start navigating them, leveraging them towards other properties. It's kind of interesting that he's not the first one in the recent month who contacted me and said, remember those properties we bought six, five, five, six, seven years ago? All right, too, a lot of equity there. How can I navigate them uh, to other properties and continue growing my portfolio? 
Over the years, I have been in more operating, investing, helping others to buy rental properties in more than 30, probably more than 35 different US metros, nothing in California. By the way, I live in Orange County, California. Jessica is also located here in Orange County. So we are based in Southern California, but all our activity, investing, properties, teams, et cetera, are in different parts of the country, not locally at all. Um, and over the years, since 2004 until now, so the past 18 years, I have helped uh, clients, people um, to buy real estate in different parts of the country. I've helped well over 5,000 transactions of buying, mainly buying, a lot of selling as well in different parts of the country. Many of them still you know, hold the properties. Many of them sold the properties over the years. So it's always you know, very, very dynamic. So that's kind of a little bit about my background, where I'm coming from. Um, and I can really say that our clients are, um, we, have, we have doctors and lawyers and high-tech people and uh, teachers and post, post, I had a post person, I had the uh, uh, firefighters in the past. So it's a variety of people coming from different backgrounds, all wanting to better their life financially and understanding that real estate can be a really good tool to accomplish that. Um, while I'm speaking, Jessica, maybe if you can look back and find a few of the maybe two, three other webinars we had uh, recently, mm -hmm. maybe we can kind of tell, you know, not just go and check what those webinars are, but actually tell or put in the, in the, in the chat, the actual topic and people sure. can be, can relate to a specific, you know, content that we provided. Can it kind of brings everything I'm talking about in the introduction to, um, uh, you know, to, to, to good, good complementary to what I'm talking about. Absolutely. We want to talk about risk today. Now, I really want to, uh, you know, risk. Wow. Risk is a big word, right? It took me a long while as, a, as, a, as someone who's investing in real estate to really kind of break it into part. And when I mean into part, I don't mean to four letters. I really mean, how do you deal with risk? And risk is kind of, it's kind of, okay, there's risk. What is risk? I mean, risk is such a, such a, like it's a whole concept, right? And I think that what I want to do is share with you in this webinar what I have learned how to tackle risk, right? Because risk is a big, big, big uh, uh, word or con contains a lot of stuff. And I think the most important thing is that it you know, sits in front of us is how do we tackle this? Like, what is risk and how do we tackle this? And if there's one thing I want you to take, and I think it's kind of becoming a more of a thread that I mentioned in almost every webinar that, that we do is the importance of knowing to ask questions, right? The, the, you know, it's so important to know how to ask the questions because it's not just knowing to ask questions or you need, or you need to know questions are important. How you ask the questions many times is how people are you know, providing us answers and that helps us, that really advances us in a deal we're making, in life altogether, in a situation. So I think that's kind of um, something it's really important and to know, to continue asking questions, to keep asking questions in order to get to the bottom of things, right? To really to the, to the, to the, to the nitty gritty of things. Now, when we're talking about risk, again, I'm gonna talk about risk you know, a bit more in a moment. I wanna mention that there's, when we 
tackle risk, there are multiple ways how to de-risk, right? For example, mitigation. What is mitigation? One, one way to, meet, to mitigate, to, to handle risk or to de-risk a situation is mitigating, for example, buying a property insurance. Um, sometimes there's risk reduction. How do we reduce risk? Maybe we do some proper um, due diligence, right? Um, um, how do we minimize risk? You know, we can risk so it can be minimized. How do we minimize? Maybe by financial exposure, right? Let's say, let me give you an example. When I purchased my first property in Phoenix, which I mentioned earlier, what I didn't mention is that it cost about $130,000, you know, in 2002, brand new home. And with financing, I needed a little bit more than 25% of that amount which is the down payment and closing costs, et cetera. And I did have that, right? But I had half of that, exactly half of that. And I told myself the only way I'm gonna be able to execute this transaction, my first one, right? A young guy from Tel Aviv, never been you know, investing in anything you know, in real estate altogether. Um, I called my, my cousin. My cousin is, my, you know, is, is, my same, is the same age I am. And we, we are really good friends. I called him, I say, hey, listen, there's a deal here. He's actually someone very much immersed in the financial world. If you ever have someone in your life that you know he's from age, I don't know, 15 or 16, calls the, his uh, stockbroker to tell him what to buy and what to sell and reads the financial charts you know, in the morning paper, that's the guy, right? So he never did real estate, but he was always involved in buying and selling stocks and options and stuff like that, and still does, right? So I called him, I said, I told him about what's going on. He really liked the idea. And we went in, you know, 50% um, each, right? So 12,500, each of us had to bring to the table. And what I thought is by bringing a partner, not only that I'm able to execute the deal because by myself, I wouldn't be able to do it just on my own uh, financial ability at the time, but I'm also splitting the risk into half. Someone else is now you know, sharing the risk with me. So that was the thought I was going through doing my first deal. It's not about you know just splitting the finances. It was also about splitting the risk, right? So this is how I was able to minimize my own risk uh, altogether. And also, we all know, and I, I know it's, it's kind of obvious, but the only way if we don't want to take any risk involved with investing, right? So we cannot eliminate risk. We can mitigate, reduce, minimize, think about it, do whatever, but we cannot, the only way we can not take, you know, risk while investing is actually not do anything, right? So it's inherently in any investment we're going to make. Now it's about managing that risk or, or, or handling that risk. And lastly, also something I've only heard maybe 10 years ago, I kind of, kind of thought about it, um, and it's something that I wasn't in, I didn't really think about fully when I got started, um, is also to try and price the risk, right? All right. What, what do I mean by that? So we talk about risk as, a, as like a, this big term, this big thing, but let's say a risk, it's not always easy to price the risk, but sometimes it's rather easy. Let's say we buy a house and we anticipate it's going to be vacant for one month until uh, buying a, re a rental property is going to be vacant for one month until we uh, until a tenant moves in right so now we have one month of vacancy what is the risk of that one month of vacancy well it's rather easy 
what are my monthly expenses? And that's per one month, that's my risk. So let's say I'll make it even a little bit harder. And let's say this house is closing December 1st, right? So we know winter many times, doesn't have to be, but many times it's a bit of a slower season. It may take longer to, to list the house. So how about instead of one month of vacancy, I'm gonna assume two months. You know what? I'm gonna assume three months to be on the safe side. So right now, assuming every month my expenses are a thousand bucks times three months, right? I priced the three months as part of the, I, I, I priced the risk by calling it three months times the expenses, 3,000 in this example, right? If I'm not sure, maybe it's gonna take six months, I can price it six months. I can price it a year, but I'm just trying to be realistic about it. And I just, I was just able to put a price on the risk. My risk, vacancy. How much? Three months. How much does it cost me? $3,000 in this example. All right, what do I do with it? Well, many things. I can go to the seller and tell him, listen, because of the winter, I want you to knock off 3,000. And the seller says, you know what? Okay, I'll do it. You know, just as an example, immediately I mitigated the risk, right? Just to give you an example. So again, risk is a big word. When we break it down and we know to identify it, um, we can, uh, we can uh, um, tackle it much much more in, a, in, a, in an easier way, right? We have a price tag, we have a better understanding, we can shift it to somewhere else. So that's the whole point of trying to break down the risk. And that brings me to the types of risk of situations that we see as investors, right? So what are the typical, typical right, uh, situation? If we, are, we can have a fire, theft, uh, maybe a mechanical item, you know, the HVAC breaks down, um, will it rent? Will I ever, you know, what happens if I have an eviction? Uh, what if the market crashes? Will it cash flow, right? Those are all, I just wanted to point some obvious or typical risk factors that we hear from our investors. I'm sure there are many more, but the first thing I want you to take from this list here, I call it ID listing it, is the best way to tackle risk. Instead of just calling it risk, let's identify the risk item by item. And if you tackle, you take this list or another list that you put together, and you just put all the items that in your mind are the risk factors that you are concerned about. You do not, at first you may don't even know how to handle and that's okay. But the first thing you did is ideally the risk factors and list them, right? Because once we ID them and list them, now we may be able, not always, we may be able to find ways to alleviate some of the risk by different means. For example, fire, rather easy, property insurance, theft, rather easy, property insurance, mechanical break, HVAC breaks down. Well, a bit tricky with home warranty companies, but it's a way to mitigate, you know, the risk. Okay. So home warranty, rentability. Well, if we have, if we have concerns about will the house rent and, or how long it's going to take, we can want comps, we can check for saturation, we can ask other professionals such as realtors or property managers to give us some data points to make a determination what is the rentability or lack of rentability or saturation in that area for this house. Um, if we are concerned about eviction, well, a couple of things, what we can do, first of all, in one of the 
podcast um, that I had maybe a year ago, I interviewed one of our property managers, the head of the company of one of the biggest companies we work with. And in that interview, I told him, his name is Ron. I told him, Ron, I don't want you to talk about traditional property management, ongoing items and stuff and maintenance and stuff. That's not what I'm interested. I want you to talk about the before and after. Before we have a tenant and after we have a tenant or something like that, right? I don't want to talk about the middle stuff because that's there's a lot of information about that. So we started the conversation with the process of verification, right? How to how they go about verifying that the tenant who's coming in is a qualified tenant, is okay, etc. Again, no, you know, there is no guarantees, but there is a process to eliminate problems, right? The process of verification. And then we jumped all the way to the end and we talked about situations such as issues with tenants not paying or, or something happened with the lease, etc. And he started talking about the eviction process. Okay. So first of all, the states we go into have eviction process that are relatively cheap and relatively quick. That means not all states are born equal, right? Some states are the process of eviction is lengthy and expensive. Some states, the opposite. So one way to mitigate the risk is going to states, assuming we are talking about rental properties that have shorter, cheaper, you know, um, um, eviction process. Now, how do you know which one are what? Well, a rule of thumb would be red states, blue states. Red states tend to be more landlord friendly and blue states tend to be a bit more tenant friendly. Just a rule of thumb right there. It doesn't mean they're all easy or they're all cheap. It's just you know, a good uh, uh, rule of thumb. So by going to a cert certain states, that's already inherently creating some mitigation of risk. Right, right, just by choosing the state. So simple, but still people don't necessarily give thoughts into that. Then when we, going back to the, to the interview with, with the property manager, we kept talking about um, ev evictions and dealing with tenants, you know, when the problems comes up and, we, and the property manager during that interview kept saying, Danny, remember when we talked earlier about the verification? If we did a good job of the verification, the chances of our being here are very small, right? And we kept going back and forth and mentioning how the process of verification is important to avoid this situation. What was he saying? Here is the risk. Here is how we go about it to minimize it, right? It's not elimination to minimize it. And for that reason, the chances if we, that we hit eviction you know, is much smaller, right? Situation, mitigation. Um, Market crash, right? A lot of that's the probably the number one asked questions these days of every investors we speak to is about what if the market will crash, right? So again, first answer is no guarantees. Second answer is I get it. I've been to the crash of 2008 big time. I wasn't there just, you know, like someone who's sitting on the sideline. I was in the center of it with my own investment and my own portfolio and a lot of clients. What have I learned? Well, this is how I can tackle this or how can I minimize or mitigate the risk of that? I know, I acknowledge, I can't control it, right? I have no magic power to say, 
Not a problem. I know how to mitigate it. Not me. Maybe there's someone else could do that. And if you know of that, let me know. I would be very interested to learn. But what do I do? Well, very simple. I buy quality properties in quality areas, you know, quality areas. So a good school district, desirable areas, desirable parts of the country, desirable neighborhoods, good schools, you know, attracting the middle class, you know, tenants. So I buy quality and I hold it long-term, long-term, long-term being ideally no less than seven years, right? Preferably more. Why am I doing this? Well, by going to desirable, attractive, good areas, attracting certain type of, of tenants who can who work and, and can pay the rent and they're likely to be able to avoid the um, you know, uh, uh, issues and problems that already brings me or minimizing my risk, right? So I'm choosing area, I'm choosing areas around the country and I'm choosing segments of those areas by attracting a certain type of tenants that are inherently lower risk situations, right? So that's, look at it, it's all risk mitigation. Everything that we do in the decision-making of what properties to buy is like drive driven from the risk risk factor. I'm telling you that because I am I am fully financially scarred and emotionally scarred from the crash of 2008. So for me, it's not theoretical. For me, it's not an idea. I thought for me, it's great. You know, it's my in my DNA whether I like it or not. It's just there as someone who's been through the crash. And now when I uh, uh, and I buy quality properties and I hold it long term, what does long term gives me? It gives me the chances that it will be less it, it inherently long-term, less sensitive to whatever current economy is doing, right? So if, I, so if I'm in a downturn and I'm holding long-term, I'm hoping and trying to make a lot of decisions that will help me weather the storm with the value. So let me give you a story about that, personal story. In 1990, uh sorry in 2005 sorry in 2005 i bought a house a single family outside orlando actually it's in orlando east side of orlando it's called east orlando i bought it with a tenant for hundred and eighty eight thousand dollars in 2005 september of 2005 right i still own that house actually the tenant asked me today if they, if I, if they are permitted to replace uh, a faucet in the kitchen, right? And I said, of course you are. Uh, but in that house for 188 purchased in 2005, right? Towards the, the, the top of the market for those of you who've been around and remember the crash of 2008. In 2009, at the bottom, I remember looking at Zillow and I'm like, oh my God, this house is now worth uh, 84,500, right? That is half, actually it's less than half. I, it, the image of 84,500 in Zillow is burned in my mind, right? And those webinars do not help us, they refresh it, they bring it up to the forefront. So that house went from 188 to 84,500, my house, right? Not a fun situation, right? It wasn't shocking, I know what's going on, but it's not a fun situation to be, to be in. You feel like, what have you done? And you doubt yourself, et cetera. But I told myself, Danny, shut up, write it through. 
It's a good house in a good area. Just write it out, right? And I did, and I still have it. And it's 325, 350, you know, I don't know, something around that. So it's doing well in terms of occupancy. Instead, in many ways, it did very well, but I had to be patient and ride it through the storm and wait for the storm, not only to be you know, behind me, but actually then start climbing up to the original value and then continuing and going beyond that. It took time, right? So this is what, 2005 until today, we're talking about 17 years, is it? Or 16 years or something along those lines. Well, I was patient, by the way, great house. I have no, I'm very happy with it, right? In many, many other ways, but it wasn't pleasant, right? So what helped me? One thing, well, two things, quality. It's a good house in a good area, long-term, right? I've weathered the storm in terms of values and I was just patient with it. So that just tells me if I buy quality in long-term, I'm able to inherently mitigate a lot of the chances. Now, I want to be. I want you to be a bit, a bit careful a bit about this point of market crash and, and you know, and long term and quality and long term. Because if someone is doing this and following this suggestion, but six years, seven years later, it's exactly after they purchase the house, the house's value drops down exactly in the in the midst of a crisis, and you sell, and it's you know it's worth less than what you paid for. You will exercise. You will activate a loss unless you still wait right so even if you bought it seven years ago and now you want to sell it and it's dropping and the value whatever and you can't sell it because the the market is not really a good time for it and you can be patient and you're not going nervous and you're not being uh, uh scared and you're just gonna hang on you know hunker down a little bit and just ride it for a few more years very likely at least historically speaking, you'll be okay. You just have to weather the storm, right? The storm may be a year after you purchase. It may be seven years after you purchase, right? How do we know? We, we, there's no way to, to know except patience. Real estate, what I've learned over the, those almost 20 years, <coughs> excuse me, really loves to, you know, uh, time. And the more patient you are, the, probably the better it will, it will provide you. Um, and lastly, for the points I brought, I know there's more risk items, is cash flow, right? We all want to invest for cash flow. Uh, I want to mention a couple of things about mitigating or, you know, um, avoiding a break-even or a negative cash flow situation. How do you do that? Well, first of all, a proper analysis, right? We do that every day. We just conduct proper analysis to make sure you know, the cash flow is there. Now, it doesn't mean all our properties are cash flowing, you know, hundreds of dollars a month every every month just because, you know, we did a certain type of analysis. We are very cautious about the cash flow analysis to make sure on one hand, we are not using a, a method of worst case scenario because that'll be the worst case. And then on the other end, we don't want to use best case scenario, obviously. So we want to call use what I call a realistic case scenario, maybe to be a little bit more conservative about it. And then once we do a real life analysis, realistic with a little bit of conservatism built into it, we then maybe gonna we're just gonna play a little bit with the interest rate just to see how the house will behave 
when the interest rate comes back down to normal times, let's just call it even 5%, right? So we do everything like today, and then when it's ready, we're just gonna see, we, we're gonna change the, the interest rate just to, for the, to see how this house could perform while still having a mortgage with a normal rate. And then we go, bring it back to the today's rate, right? So we don't keep the today's rate out, we keep it in, we just wanna test it and measure and see how this house performing with uh, with different rates, right? Just to kind of get the, the gist of it. But the, the point for this session today is that we do proper analysis, quality and quantity in order to make a determination if a certain property is meeting what we want, what we want, what we want it to meet financially, cash flow-wise, et cetera, right? So a lot of items that instead of just calling them bundling up and they say oh, there's a risk all right i'm breaking it down how you know i'm identifying one by one and then i try to tackle one by one now if you are someone who is a beginner that may sound a little bit overwhelming but i have a little bit good news for you the first time you do it and that consumes more of your time and attention and even if your list is not perfect it will be challenging and time consuming but then the second time you do it, you already have a lot of the answers or you know how to extract better answers because you've already been through the process of buying and maybe owning and maybe owning for a little while and kind of adjusting. You Suddenly you see that you didn't ask the right question about property insurance or you didn't know how to, there was a risk you didn't think about or anticipated, now you know. So this list, you don't need to perfect it on one hand, but it also can stay and should stay dynamic, right? Maybe you start today before your first property with 10 items on your risk list. And then by the time you do your second property, you add four more items. Great, you add it, you tackle, you mitigate, or find a way how to manage the risk, and then you move on, you know, et cetera. So it may be overwhelming now, but that could come more of a second nature to you. If you are an experienced investor, you may have already been through a few of those items. Obviously, I would assume that most of those items are not new to you. Maybe the, all of the list, all of the items on the list are not new to you. But the question is, have you been through the process with yourself about identifying or making sure you have identified, you know, different list, different risk factors and know how to mitigate them? So absolutely something that it's worth doing. If you're, if you're a beginner, do it before or during the process. If you're an experience, it's healthy to run through some self-check um, you know, at least once a year. So one of the things we do twice a year for our clients who purchase properties with us, we remind them a list of things we, we expect them or want them right to do to make sure they're checking into their properties regularly, right? So that list has 14 or 15 different items. Some are really simple. Some are a little bit more time consuming. Nothing is complicated. But the whole point is we know, I know risk is part of investing. I want to be a service to my clients, reminding them to check themselves, to make sure that they have updated their insurance details, that they have... Uh, uh, you know, you know, inspected the house regularly, stuff like that. So that 
idea of twice a year to send them the list is kind of remind them, hey, you should do this, you should do that. Whether they pursue and, and do the, thing, the items on the list or not, it's entirely up to them. I just want to make sure nobody kind of loses sight of the important things uh, you know, on that list. And you know what? It's, it's very helpful. They, we teach our clients to maintain a healthy owner mindset, right? It, it maybe sound obvious, but I've seen a lot of people in my career that they just buy and they're just because they're busy, they're not neglecting their property in the, in the, in the negative sense. They're just not on, you know, not proactively taking care of it instead of reactively, right? That's the whole point that I'm trying to make. So we try to make our investors, clients, owners, better owners, better owner, less risk, better owner, better, you know, better chances of succeeding, right? So that's a big part of what we do is how do we optimize success, help our clients optimize their success. Um, before we take questions, and I just wanna share a few things with you. So first of all, if you're interested, I have uh, an ebook that I wrote about remote investing. And that's what I've been done for, I've done for the past 20 years, as you understand. Uh, it's a short, not, not too short, but it's simple to read, simple to follow. It's not a, you know, hundreds of pages. It's not a promotional uh, kind, of a, kind of a book. It's really, you know, a, method, a methodical way, how to think about investing, things that you can do, et cetera. You're most welcome to download the book. The link is at the bottom of this uh, page, and I'll just mention it because this also goes to our podcast. Uh, it's simplydoit.net forward slash ebook. Simplydoit.net forward slash ebook. So that's one thing that you can uh, download if you're interested to get a little bit more information about investing. We do have a YouTube channel, and we do have a podcast channel. I think we have... 300-ish episodes on the uh, on the podcast. Maybe I'm, I'm off by, by, by a dozen or two, uh, one way or the other. Very much the style of tonight, talking, teaching from experience, trying to share, trying to teach, to educate. So you're most welcome to, uh, to look us up on any of the podcast uh, outlets out there. We are, the podcast name is Guided Real Estate Investing by Simply Do It guided real estate investing by simply do it you are most welcome to subscribe and consume content through the podcast channel that i love podcasts it's amazing i'm like junk podcast junkie uh here's my contact information our contact information and lastly before we take questions uh i want to offer anyone who wants to meet with us and take the time usually 30 to 45 minutes one-on-one, -on -one, talk about your specific situation, specific questions, things that are you're concerned about, not risk necessarily related. Altogether, we meet with investors on a daily basis, trying to see if there's a way we can help you execute investing through using our platform, the Simply Do It platform, right? So it's a one-on-one -on -one intimate, not a sales pitch, usually, we just ask you to complete an intake form. Uh, probably going to take you three to four minutes. Now, no social security, no personal information, no credit card, nothing. When we speak, no sales pitch, no boot camps, nothing. It's just about let us go through your scenario. Let 
we want to let you in a more intimate situ uh, settings tell us what your situation is what questions you have for us how we can help you navigate the you know what you want to accomplish we may not we may even discover this is not the best fit it did happen in the past i have no problem telling people we are not a good fit if it's not but if it is when we end up working together by all means so you're most welcome to join or complete the intake on simplydoit.net forward slash intake. Once you take those three, four minutes and co to complete the intake, you know, we'll set up a time and we'll take it from there. So if you're interested, we are, uh, that's what we do day in, day out. And with that said, I think we are ready to take uh, questions. I think, yep. yep. So we do have a question in the chat from Paige. She wants to know, how do you track or find out how well an area is appreciating? Um, how, do, you know, area, you know, it's really a lot of the big websites such as Zillow and Redfin do have inner pages that are research pages. It just requires a little bit of digging um, to find out how, you know, which, which report presents the answer for the area you're looking for. So that's just one way to go about it. Second way to go about it is reach out and talk to a realtor because almost every MLS, I want to say every MLS, but, it, but I would say almost every MLS, measure multiple uh, key factors, key indexes in their markets. For example, medium price and average price in their metro. How many houses are on the market? You know, it's how many days it took to sell, etc. And they share that information with their realtors every month. So that means normally by the somewhere between the fifth or 10th of the month, we will see, we can see the data from the previous month. So if you are connected to a certain realtor, you can definitely um, ask them to provide you and they'll give you, that will be on the metro level, right? So if you wanna know the information, let's say to a certain zip code or a certain region area within a metro, this is not the right tool because that will be on what the entire metro and that's where maybe tools such as digging into Zillow and Redfin you know more inner pages that they do provide sometimes data by zip code will give you that information but if you're like okay I want to see what I don't know um, St. Louis did in the, in the in the past month or year then the MLS will have that information should have that information Sometimes the MLS will share that information online on their website. So you can, for example, search for um, St. Louis MLS, and it has a different, whatever the name is. I don't remember what the, na the name of the MLS. And then maybe on their website, they share that information. But a lot of MLSs are holding the info inside and will only enable you to access through a realtor. Um, if it's an area that we are operating in and you want us to see if we can provide you information, you can definitely shoot us a text, a chat, an email, and we can try and see 
um, to be a little bit more specific. Hopefully that helps. Yes, and um, Paige, I've actually set the security settings. So if you wanna ask your next question directly, you can go ahead and unmute yourself. Cause she was saying she's getting mixed messages. Sure. Yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, I've just, I'm just starting to look at possibly doing, um, buying an investment property and I'm getting mixed messages where one person was like, you definitely don't want to buy from a builder. You definitely don't want to buy in an area that has potential to just keep creating newer and newer and newer suburbs around you. Um, because maybe the land itself isn't really as valued as high. And then I've also been told it's a great opportunity because it's a new house, less risk <laughs> to have to fix it up. Um, and that it's just a popular, it's a popular area that a lot of people are moving to, hence the more and more development. So it's just feels very um, polar. Noisy. What was that? Noisy. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I think your question is actually uh, I, I am listening here. So first of all, nice to meet you. Thank you for putting the, the camera on. It's a pleasure. So thank you yes, for that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, very nice to, to meet you in person. Um, I want to I, I wanna suggest a way, I think we talked about it maybe in a previous webinar, but I want to tackle this from not just the risk or the specific data. I think that many times as, especially beginners, Mm -hmm. Or even, you know, sometimes I even see that pattern from people who are coming back after many years of being not active as investors. It's overwhelming, right? So, mm -hmm. wow, we have Zillow, Redfin and all of those, but wow, is it overwhelming with information? And then everybody has an opinion, right? Mm -hmm. This guy says this. So what I like to do and what I, I like to ask everyone that I speak to is like, how about you, before you start listening to others, try to listen to yourself and write down the list of, you know, like your, your values or your true, what, what would a good property look, will look like for you? Not for mm -hmm. Jessica and not for me, it's different, right? So you can start, for example, um, I'll, I'll ask the question, I'm not gonna give you the answer, but the, the, the routine of questions that, that will help. So single family, duplex or fourplex, you don't need to answer, right? I'm just giving you some, some line of right. thing. 900 square foot, 1200 square foot, 2000, 3000. Again, it doesn't have to be strict, but just to kind of to give you some framework three bedrooms, four bedrooms, five bedrooms, six bedrooms, two bedrooms, one bathroom, one and a half with car garage, no car garage. See, I'm, I'm just outlining basic stuff, but right there, and again, there is no right and wrong. There's only what Paige thinks is correct for her, right? Then budgets. You're buying cash or mortgage. Either way, how much you can afford, right? Mm -hmm. um, are you buying locally or out of state, right? Mm -hmm. I, I, again, I don't know. And there's no right or wrong. This is what's right for you. As soon as you start out outlining those questions, then you start answering for yourself what I'm trying to accomplish, what I would like you to accomplish by this exercise is finding let's call it the threshold property that you would consider buying. So meaning, I'm going, now I'm going to use an example, right? Let's just say after you went through this exercise, you decided that you, it needs to be at least 1,500 square feet, at least 1990 built and after, 
it can be out of state, at least one car garage. Um, um, three bedrooms, two baths, but no more than four bedrooms, three baths, okay? And, and maybe you go, you go through all those, those items and you answer. So now you have a framework. What is a qualified property for page looks like, right? Mm-hmm. And it can also be yes, duplex, no duplex, all of those things and budget. And then every property I would look at, I would say, does it fit with those baseline criteria that I've set to myself? Now, your baseline criteria do not have to be set in stone, but at least it's a starting point. And when you have this starting point, you can compare because now you're going to start. Now the information will start confusing you. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it's easier when you have a, you know, you have a, you created yourself like a, like a recipe. Does this property meet my recipe? It does. Let's consider it. It's not even close. Let's, let's, let's move on. It's okay. So that's something that I think that especially for beginner to have that framework, what a qualified, not ideal, not HDTV vision, like realistically, if this, if you would see this property in front of you, and it hits all those checklists, all those items on your checklist, you would say, I would buy it, right? And now it's it's about knowing that it's hard to get that perfect picture, you know, property. Now is how much, um, how much you will compromise, let's just say. So for example, let's say you said 1990 and after, when you find something that everything makes sense, but it's 1988, right? Or, or it's 1,400 square feet. Right? I'm using those on purpose. Obviously, it's not necessarily a deal killer, right? But if it's 1970 and 1,000, that's way too far, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's one thing that I, I think could help anyone who's just trying to identify what's relevant for them. The, if you are still being challenged by identifying that, you know, answering yourself with that list, I would say either find a mentor or a friend, because when you have a friend or a mentor, they will help help you with the brainstorming back and forth, you know, deciphering. Sometimes when you talk to someone else, it's easier to clarify your thoughts or your decisions, right? So my next progression for you, if you're still kind of a little bit stuck is to reach out to either a mentor or a friend. A friend is ideal, right? It's great, but not, we can't always find them at the friends that are on the same page as we are. Um, it doesn't have to be a friend that wants to invest in exactly the same thing, but it's just, let's say you have you know, in your social circle, someone who's also interested in investing. How about we meet once a week and we talk about ideas and brainstorm? That's the, what I mean by a friend. And if we can't find that, then maybe a mentor, right? The mentor has a cost, but there's benefits for that. Uh, so that would be the main answer. On the top of that, what I have I taught myself early on when I got started in 2002 and three, everybody in my surrounding was really generous to give me advices. Unbelievable. Nobody's investing, tons of advices, right? Now, as a young investor, young by age, young by experience, everything, I didn't have the confidence to block those things. It was, you know, it was getting into my head and messing with me. So at some point I did two things. One, or maybe three things. One, I put plug, I, I, I say I always put uh, earplugs and I say block the noise. 
I had to block the noise. If I would not block the noise, I would not be to here today because I would be scared to invest. That's the way I decided to block the noise, which amazes me how people who have no experience with investing are really generous with uh, giving us advices, uh, investing at large, not just in you know, real estate. Second thing is I realized that I need to put the horse's blinders and that's exactly the list you will have. It will help you put the horse's blinders and focus on the right one for you, for you, right? And lastly, to avoid all that noise, I stopped talking to people a little bit, right? I only talked in rooms that I could know I could get a good advice or a good suggestion or a good feedback and not in rooms that they were just, you know, distracting me or defocusing me, okay? Hopefully that helps. Okay. That's, uh, okay. you know, tools that I've kind of, told myself I need it in order to execute because it's, it's, yeah, it's very noisy. Still, by the way, if you think that 20 years later, I don't get distracted or I don't hear noises around me, you know, I do. But now I'm better at, you know, blocking them. Still, still an effort, still a muscle I have to keep training. But thank you very much for, for the question and, and for, for bringing this up. I think it's really important. Thank you. Raj, do you want to unmute yourself and ask your question, or I can go ahead and and ask? Okay, uh, Raj has a question. He wants to know, what is a good investment property, multifamily or single family home? What are the pros and cons? And can you please help elaborate? Um, can Raj uh, tell us if when he says multi, does he mean up to four or more than four units? That would be beneficial. If not, I will just make an assumption. I'll wait for a minute. And Jessica, while we up wait to four. Up to four. Mm -hmm. Up thank to four. You. Mm -hmm. yes. uh, thank you. And maybe you can list while I'm answering, uh, answer Mark in uh, in the chat. Maybe if, every, uh, oh, are you able to see? No. Okay. I don't have a question for Mark. All right. It looks like uh, it went to you. Okay. Uh, it's only to me. So I will answer verbally. Okay. Um, okay. So uh, multi versus single, right? Okay, it's a very good question, and it years in the refinement. I'll I'll, I'll have to be honest. Uh, years back, I was not a very big, um, very big on multi units, maybe duplexes, single family and duplexes. So I'll start by saying I'm a single family home junkie because I think it's the easy to analyze and it's easy to understand, is relatively easy to manage. Uh, relatively, the I would say the most liquid asset, the American dream in many times. So I am very much big on single family homes. But one of the reasons I was not a big fan of the duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes is because many times the explexes, especially triplexes and fourplexes, are located in communities that are not as nice or not as good as the single family home, right? So I would say many times duplexes are, can be found that are almost like bringing two single family homes together, right? So they, so it makes sense, right? It's almost behaves and acts and looks everything like a single family home. So for me, single family home duplex makes sense. The triplexes and fourplexes were a little bit unattractive, primarily for the reason that um, the communities they are in are many times not as 
because of the saturation, not as attractive. And many times they are smaller by square footage, smaller by specs, you know, bedrooms, bathroom, et cetera. That was many years. Over the years, especially maybe in the past five, six years, I started finding not always multi triplexes, especially fourplexes that look and feel many times like almost four single family homes together, right? And I love those, not always. So I have started, we have started working with our investors and buying uh, single family homes, you know, fourplexes. Triplex is, is a product that I rarely see, I, very rarely. And duplexes, they're a little bit more like the single family. Fourplexes, when they're a bit bigger by square footage, a bit bigger by bedrooms and bathrooms, and, and they have the ability to look and behave and, and kind of service very similarly to the single family homes, I love a lot. And those who are not exactly like that, I love, I love but less, okay? But I have also found that in the fourplexes, many times hides a really good opportunity. And very common, almost every fourplex that we see, the rents are below market value. And that means many times four units that are rented 10, 15, 20, 25% below market value, which means many times the price I'm paying for those four units are reflecting the current value or the current rents and not the future rents that I can bring in. In other words, I have found that many times the owners of fourplexes have just kind of, were not that energetic on increasing the rents and keeping up with the rents for whatever reason, right? But it's just a repetitive, you know, pattern. I see it, we see it all the time. So for me, that's an opportunity. That's a slow opportunity. What do I mean by slow opportunity? When we look at a fourplexes, we measure them not based on what the actual rent at the moment is, but we measure them on what the market rent is, right? Carefully what the market rent is, knowing that in the next year, probably it's gonna take me a slow kind of grind until I get to that point. So I always tell my, my clients like, listen, the fourplex is underperforming and it's not gonna overperform as, as where we are you know, analyzing it overnight. Why? Because in order for it to over to perform overnight, it means that we have to if you know move out as soon as possible all the tenants. If we need to do some work, we need to do that work immediately and then put all those units at the same time back on the market. I don't think that's a very smart move. Usually, let's deal with either going to the existing tenants and increasing the rent, and maybe one is vacant and we fix it up. So we so, the, so we kind of go through all the four units over the next six months to a year, increasing rents, replacing tenants, maybe doing some TLC in order to get a little bit more tenant. And then normally after a year, the property is performing where we wanted it. So we have to understand it's going to be financially more of a challenging year. And then at the end of that year, if we navigate it correctly, we'll get to where the uh, uh, what we wanted. Many times when I say year, things actually happen quicker than one year, but I'm just using kind of a slow burn or a slow grind until we get to that point. So that means to ask your question, to answer your question, sorry, I learned to see the potential 
that almost every fourplex brings by being uh, there's an upside, an upside off um, cash flow by just raising the rent, right? Maybe fixing it up and raising the rent or just raising the rent. So for that reason, I love, I'm crazy. You know, I'm junkie of single family homes. Sorry for using uh, this, this, this term. I really love single family homes and duplexes, but I've learned to see the value or potential or upside in fourplexes. And I'm still picky on the type of fourplexes I'm, I'm choosing. So I can tell you that just last week, we were looking at the three fourplexes in the St. Louis area, and we were not happy at all. I mean, no, that was very quickly disqualified, right? There's so many problems that we can tell, and there's so many issues that we risk that we can anticipate, and it's like, no, right? So, um, I mean, it, it could be a yes for the right price, but the right price was not even you know, available to us. We were told you know, very quickly. So here's an example where it could be a great opportunity, but I could tell it's maybe going to be more than one year of that slow grind to get to that point. So that was too much unknowns, too much issues, too much problems. And only for a really low price, we were willing to, to you know, to grind for another year, but they were not on the same page, at least not yet. So that hopefully that, that helps. Uh, that answered the question of multi versus single family, right? I am a little bit more focused on the opportunity than just saying yes to single family, no to expenses or vice versa. But I also think it's really important if I go back to my answer to Paige a few minutes ago is to kind of set your belief system or set your value system or property system first. So just because I'm giving you my answer doesn't mean this is the right answer for you or the way, you know, or the way you look at things, right? It's just my observation experience. I have been doing it for 20 years. I've been doing it on large scale. It could be just a different flavor. Let's just put it this way, okay? Jessica, we have any more questions? I have one uh, on my end. Yeah, you go ahead on your end. I don't have anything here just yet. Okay, so um, Mark, thank you for the question, sent me a message asking, um, how can we find out what areas you operate in? So I will give you that answer that these days we are primarily active in the following four metros, which are Nashville, Tennessee, the greater Nashville, Tennessee, um, Metro of Kansas City, Metro of St. Louis, Missouri, and Birmingham, Alabama. Those are the main four active ones. Now, Dallas, Metro Houston and Metro Dallas-Fort Worth are also kind of lagging behind. And I'm saying lagging behind because between the rents, the, the, the rent, the insurance and property taxes, they are very, very challenging to cash flow. So they are, yes, active, but not really very active, right? So we have teams and, and, and everything, uh, but we are not doing much because the numbers are not there, although those are great metros. Uh, we also have teams and not active due to the numbers in Tampa and Orlando, uh, only numbers wise. I mean, if, if tomorrow I see that the numbers are coming back on coming to a reasonable cash flow in any of them, I'll be very happy to, to resume operations. So I have teams, we don't do anything, right? Just because it's numbers, right? So those are uh, the eight metros that I mentioned. 
the main active four, Nashville, St. Louis, Kansas City, and Birmingham, Alabama. Thank you, Mark. I don't have anything else unless someone wants to unmute themselves and ask a question or if you have anything uh, on your end, Danny. Uh, no, I just want to thank everyone. I want to thank those who brought the question. Thank you for taking it to, 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 uh, um, to putting the questions. Uh, the question is my favorite part, of course. And I want to wish everybody uh, happy holidays and looking forward to seeing you in 2023. And... I want to wish all of you uh, happy investing, successfully investing, and you know where to uh, get a hold of us if you, that's what you want to do. Absolutely. We'll be happy to speak with you. Yes, we would love that. So yeah, thank you, everybody. Uh, we will be sending out a link that's got a recording of this in case you want to go back at a later date and maybe refresh your memory or uh, watch it again. So um yeah, look forward to that email and hopefully we'll see you at our next webinar in a few weeks. Thank you, everyone. All right. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye.